0: Well, good morning, church. It is great to have you here with us this morning. Brian stole my intro Lent joke, and I'm not happy about it, to be perfectly honest with you, and so I'm starting at kind of a negative place this morning, but it's all right, we're going to get through it. Uh, If today's your first time with us, my name is DJ. I'm the associate minister here at the Summit. We're continuing in our Mark series uh, that I have really been enjoying just diving in to Mark's perspective of the story of Jesus. Uh, It's the action gospel, right? It focuses more on the things that Jesus did in his ministry, um, less on the the things that he taught. Um, And so it's been a very interesting journey that we've been going through. And so if you have your Bibles, go to Mark chapter 6. We're going to finish out this chapter chapter this morning. You can also, if you want to follow along on your phone, you can go to the summitstl.info slash notes, and you can follow along with us there. But let's read this text this morning from Mark 6, starting at verse 45. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea. And he was alone on the land. And he saw that the disciples were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea. And he meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, and he said, "Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid." And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Let's pray this morning. Awesome God, as we come before you and as we dive into your word, we ask in the powerful name of Jesus and in the presence of your spirit, what we know not, please teach us. And what we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. In your holy name. Amen. I want to do something a a, a little different as we start our time this morning, something that I I don't usually do, don't know if I've ever done, but I want to take a second and tell you what this sermon is not going to be. Because as we wrestle through the the gospel of Mark, and, and you probably know there are four different gospels, which means there are four different perspectives of the life and ministry of Jesus. All completely true, all completely accurate, but each one emphasizing different things from different ways to communicate different truths about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And this is a story that many of you have probably heard before, but I want to start by just diving into what Mark's perspective, what his point of this story is not. If you flip to the Gospel of Matthew and you read this story, Matthew adds in a pretty significant chunk of the story that's missing in Mark. He tells the story about how when Jesus approaches the disciples on the boat, Peter says, Lord, if it's you, ask me to come out there to you. And Jesus says, Let's go. (laughs) And Peter gets out of the boat and he's walking on the water toward Jesus. And then what happens? He takes his eyes off of Jesus, he begins to sink. Jesus has to pull him up out of the water and says, ye have little faith, why do you take your eyes off me? And from Matthew's perspective, as he's writing this narrative, as he's retelling the events that happened that he saw firsthand, for him it was important to remind his readers that Christ got in to the water with us and he called us to step out of the boat, to trust him. And yes, indeed, that's true. Sometimes Jesus calls us out of the boat to come and to put our complete trust and faith in him, to keep our eyes fixated on him and who he is. But for Mark, this is not a story about Jesus calling us to step out of the boat. Flip to the last gospel, the gospel of John. And I love how John frames this story. He's kind of building this anticipation of the fame of Jesus, of how known Jesus is becoming, about how popular Jesus is getting. And so the way that John kind of paints this picture, he's doing it from the perspective of his fame is getting so much so that the people are literally ready to seize him, to take him to Jerusalem, and to declare that he is the king. They're tired of waiting. Things are going too slow for them. Jesus obviously is different. He has a lot of power. He has a lot of authority. Let's go ahead and just make him king right now. And so John is approaching this from a very different perspective, that people are eager to make Jesus But what happens is Jesus sends the disciples away from him. And he comes to them in the storm, and the disciples are eager, even the disciples are eager to bring Jesus into the boat with them. The disciples, from John's perspective, they understand that Jesus can help them. They just need to get in, get him into the boat. And so for John, he's painting this perspective of how, yes, sometimes we need to remember that Jesus, in his authority, in his power, got into our boat while we were suffering. He became the king that we needed him to be in the time that we needed him to be that. And he rescued us. But for Mark, this is not that story. Mark tells this story in a very interesting way. He's writing, remember, to a Gentile audience, so so to non-Jews people that aren't as familiar with Old Testament scriptures and traditions and prophecies. And for Mark, he's painting this picture really of an intercession that's happening, a story of redemption that's happening, a story that points to, and I love we've used this word several times throughout this series, a story that points to one of the biggest, if not the biggest reset that humankind has ever and will ever experience. And as we'll see, I believe that for Mark, this is a story of our journey of faith and how our faith diminishes our broken reality of suffering. And so keep that in mind. This is the perspective that Mark is painting this picture for us. And so let's... let's define some terms just real quick. Have you ever thought about what faith is? I mean, seriously. Have you ever thought and wrestled with biblically how faith is defined? We actually get a definition of it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. The writer of Hebrews says this, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. But think about that for a minute. There are some words in there that if we start to wrestle with them don't seem like they should go together. We don't often see words like uh, assurance of things hoped for in a sense together. Let me give you an example. I've shared this with you many times. I'm very open about this. Uh, I will spill my heart out in this matter. I am not athletic by any means at all. I played softball with a group of guys here, I think, one time, and I'm pretty sure I still hold the record for the most strikeouts in slow-pitch softball, and I've accepted that as I'm into my 30s. I've just said, okay, you know what? I get it. I'm not going to try anymore. My son, my oldest son, Leland, he just turned seven years old, seems like he's different, It seems like he might actually have some sort of athletic ability. Recently, he took up uh, a love for basketball, which I guess I'm fine with. (laughs) At least it's not soccer, right? (laughs) But bam! So he recently took up uh, this love for basketball, and he asked me uh, several weeks ago, he said, Dad, can we buy uh, a basketball hoop? And I said, sure, why not? So we buy a basketball hoop, take it home, it takes me like 24 hours to assemble it, <laughs> put it in uh, the, the, the front driveway, and I'm not kidding, he's been out there every day until we tell him, hey, buddy, you got to come in. And I'm not going to lie, I'll tell this to you, but don't tell him this, I think he's pretty good. <laughs> and the reason I say that, if you tell him he's good, he's like, Psh, I don't know. I'm the best, and I'm like, all right, dude, let's just chill out for a second, but he's pretty good, so we, uh, we, uh, we took all of our kids to the park last weekend, and Leland said, hey, can, I, can we bring basketball, and I said, absolutely, let's go, so we go there, my other three kids and, and Diana, they go off, and they play on the playground, Leland's like, hey, let's go over and, and shoot some baskets, I say, okay, great, so we're over there, and I'm just, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm like, hey, shoot the ball into the basket." That's as far as my coaching knowledge goes, right? These kids, there's two kids. They have to be like maybe nine and 10. They come over to us. They got the ball under their arm. They say, hey, you want to play some (laughs) two-on-two? Now, here's what you need to know about me. I am not athletic, which translates to if you are between the ages of six years old and 10 years old and you challenge me, I'm coming for you. Like, it's all bets off. I'm going to go hard in this game. All right? So I look at these two kids, and I say, yeah, let's go. Let's throw down right now. Just me, a 10-year-old, a 9-year-old, and a (laughs) 7-year-old, throwing down right here. And so we played, you know, for for 20 minutes, whatever it was. We won, obviously. (laughs) But what I loved about that... (laughs) It's so funny. What I loved about that is when we were done, the boys were packing up their ball in their pile of shame. (laughs) My wife and and my other kids come walking towards us, and as the two boys and the rest of my family pass each other, one of the the boys looks at my wife and says, Is that your son? She says, Yes. The boy says, He's going to be in the NBA. (laughs) And I'm over there like, Darn right he is. (laughs) But here's what I mean. I, I think this story fits what we're talking about. I hope they're right. Like, in all sincerity, when I'm standing there, I'm like, yeah, man, I hope that my son can find his way as a professional athlete. I would love that. Can I be assured of it? No. No, I can't. I have no idea the route that he's going to take. I have no idea if when he gets older, if he's going to even want to continue down that kind of path. I can't be assured of it. But yeah, I hope they're right. I think when we really think about it, in light of what the author of Hebrews is saying, faith doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It's contrary to everything that we believe is reality. What they're saying is, no, listen, faith is the assurance of what is hoped for. It's the conviction of things that are unseen. And for Mark, that is the point of this story that he's writing. What he is emphasizing is to help show us that in our life, in our walk with Jesus, faith needs to become the diminishing of our own broken view of reality. The longer we walk with Jesus, the longer we dive into the teachings and the life of Jesus and his word, what should happen is pieces of our own broken reality should start to fade away. To where what we're left with is this worldview, this system of beliefs that to anybody who is outside of faith should make no sense. It's the assurance of things that are hoped for. I love how John the Baptist phrased this in, in his ministry, in his journey. It says in, in John 3, John John the Baptist says, he must increase, and I must decrease. And so that's the perspective that Mark is telling this story, that for us, if we're truly all in, if we truly have accepted the call to follow Christ, not to just make him part of our life, but to surrender our life to him, we need to allow our faith in him. We need to allow his spirit within us to diminish our broken reality and to create in us an everlasting reality from a divine perspective. And so three things that I want to dive in that I think Mark is showing us that this kind of faith does. And the first thing is this, that faith diminishes loneliness. Faith diminishes loneliness. Look again at how this story starts. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and Jesus was alone on the land. He saw that the disciples were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. There's a couple stories I want to refer back to In this moment, you remember uh, last week, Brian preached on uh, the feeding of the 5,000. And this is right after that. And so the disciples had just experienced this miracle of provision that goes beyond just a regular miracle. This was Jesus really showing and declaring who he was, that he was the son of God. He comes as the word in flesh. So it's the end of the day. And John tells us in John 6 verse 15 that the crowd was going to come and take Jesus by force to make him king. And so it seems like Jesus is sensing what's happening, that, that something uh, could go wrong. And so he says, okay, it's time to wrap up here. I'm going to send the disciples away and I'm going to go and pray. And you have to pay attention here to the things that Mark says. Highlights because what he's highlighting here is that in this moment there is a physical separation between the disciples and Jesus. They're not occupying the same space in this moment, right? He puts the disciples in the boat, says, Go to the other side. I'm going to go up to the mountain and pray. There is a physical separation between Jesus and the disciples. And then evening came, and the boat is in the middle of the sea. Jesus is on the land. And I love what Mark says. It says that he saw that they were making headway painfully. That word painfully is used elsewhere uh, in scripture. It's, it's used at times to describe somebody who's being tormented by demons. It's used to describe the pain of childbirth. It's even used to describe the experience of hell. And so the idea here is great suffering is happening. The disciples are in a deep struggle, an extreme suffering. And can you imagine what they're thinking in this moment? Where's Jesus? Jesus? And it's interesting, actually, because if you go back to Mark chapter 4, I preached on this uh, a few weeks ago, a very similar situation happens when we're going across the same sea. The disciples, this time with Jesus, are in a boat. A storm comes up. The disciples freak out. What's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. The disciples say, what's going on? They wake Jesus up. Jesus wakes up, he says, peace be still. There's a calm, there's a quiet. The disciples freak out. And so here then, we have yet again the same kind of situation. But what's the big difference? Jesus is not in the boat. There's a physical separation now. I do wonder how they would have reacted had it been the exact same type of situation to where Jesus is with them. He's sitting there. They can see him. Would they be like, okay, okay, all right, hey? We've been here before, Jesus has got it. But this time's different. And they don't know what to do, they're struggling. They're questioning. They're alone. But look what Mark chooses to say in verse 48. And Jesus saw. Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully. I'm wondering. If the disciples in this struggle would say that they were feeling abandoned by Jesus. Kind of seems like it, doesn't it? And it seems as we get deeper into the narrative. That they're really overcome in this moment of this loneliness. That feeling like Jesus just sent them out into this struggle and then left. You ever been there? But Mark emphasizes this new reality. And I love what he says. He says that that Jesus is up on the mountain praying. We don't know exactly what he's praying for, but I would, I would bet that part of his prayer is interceding for his people. He's <laughs> praying for his people. He's praying for his disciples. And then Mark says, he saw them. And I feel like for us, Sometimes what our distorted view of reality tells us is that Jesus has turned a blind eye from us. Or maybe that he's placed us in this situation and then he's backed away. And if you're anything like me, you've been in situations before where you're on your knees. and You're saying, God, where did you go? feel so alone I feel like I'm just in this struggle I've seen what you've done for other people's lives I've experienced times where I felt like you were in the boat with me but this time seems different and I'm questioning God where are you and I would argue that there's seldom a worse place to be for us, a harder place to be for us than feeling like we're alone in our struggle. Because there's so much other things that can start to come out of that. But what does Mark say? Not only was Jesus interceding for you. But he sees you. You're never alone. And the more we walk in that, the more that kind of faith diminishes our feelings of loneliness. Second thing that Mark then shows us is this, that this kind of faith that Jesus invites us into this new reality that Jesus invites us to diminishes doubt. Diminishes doubt. The next part of verse 48 says this about the fourth watch. So sometime around midnight, 3 a.m., about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And so Mark, for me, takes this narrative, uh, he takes this narrative up a notch in how he's describing it. Because not only does Jesus see that they're struggling, that they're making headway painfully, what does he do? He goes to them. I feel like there are times that we look at God and we feel like he treats us in the same way that some of us learned how to swim. Some of you understand what I mean. But for the rest of you, let me explain. I learned to swim in a way that I'm sure is probably illegal today. I was literally, we were at a lake. I was all of, I don't know, six years old, seven years old maybe. I'm standing on the dock. At that point in my life, I loved the lake. And what happens? My dad comes up behind me and he throws me into the water. I hate lakes today. I'm not a psychologist or counselor, but I bet that has something to do with it. Anybody else learn to swim somewhat this way? Right? No, just me? Okay, yeah, yeah. Me and Larry, Dwayne, thank you. But I feel like sometimes we feel like God treats us in the same way. That what God says is, all right, I got this situation brewing for you. I'm going to toss you in it, and we're going to see what happens. (laughs) Right? And the thing about that is, the problem with that is, it's contrary to the very heart of who God is. It's contrary to the very heart that Mark is painting of Jesus That Jesus not only sees them, and he's not standing on the shore saying, okay, we're going to see how this plays out. Let's see how much the disciples have learned. No, he defies everything, and he walks to them. Mark tells us he intended to pass by them. We're going to wrestle with that for just a second, but for now I want to jump ahead a little bit in the story. The first part of verse 51 says Jesus got into the boat with them. So not only does he see them, not only does he walk to them, he joins them in their struggle. He enters into their space and the big difference in that is this it's the difference between my dad throwing me in the lake and say okay i know you can do it just swim to me versus me struggling in the lake and my dad jumping in and wrapping his arms around me and what mark is communicating to us here is that jesus sees us he comes to us and he enters into the struggle with us. And it's no different today. There's a reason why later on in the life of Jesus, John records this in John 16, verse 7. He says this Jesus is talking. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I really want you to understand this because I feel like there are some people that are in here and we all struggle with this from time to time where we feel like we're alone in the struggle and then when we're in that space, when we allow ourselves to stay there What that leads to is a doubt that Jesus even cares. That God even cares, that he's even with us. We question, is he even good? And what Jesus says here, and I love this, he says, no, listen, I am leaving. My work on earth is done. And so I'm going back to my place In heaven to prepare a place for you. But it's better actually that I leave. Because now what's about to happen. Is there won't be any physical separation from you and I anymore. Because I'm sending my spirit to you. Who is literally going to dwell inside of you. Friends you can't have a God that enters into your struggle more than that. The very presence of of God in us. And when we cling to that, when we keep our eyes fixed, that we've been gifted the very presence of the rescuer, the one who saw us, who came to us, and who now indwells within us then it starts to diminish our doubt. One more thing that I think Mark wants us to see here, and sometimes I, I think it's often the most maybe challenging thing for us to wrestle with, is that faith diminishes hopelessness. The last part of verse 48 says this, that Jesus meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him, and they were terrified. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, and he said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now there's part of this passage in here that might be troubling for you. What does it mean that Jesus intended to pass by him? Right, if you're anything like me, there was maybe a time in your life where you're wrestling with this story, and you have this image of Jesus like tiptoeing on the water, like, <laughs> right, like kind of. Maybe it's just me. That's fine. <laughs> but right, it's easy to read that and be like, "Wait, what's going on? Like, is Jesus playing this game? What's he doing here?" But it's actually a very significant thing that Jesus wanted to do in this moment. There's a couple other times in the Old Testament where this type of phrase is used. Let me read them for you real quick. Exodus chapter 33. This is with Moses, verse 18 and 19. Moses said to God, please show me your glory. And God said, look at this, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is that story You might be familiar with it, right, where where God says, you can't look at my face, but I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll allow you to gaze upon the backside of my glory, and and Moses comes out, and what happens? His face is shining so bright that the people can't look at it. They have to wrap it up. Flip ahead a couple books, 1 Kings chapter 19. This is with Elijah. God said to Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed similar situation here to where God in his glory to some extent passes by Elijah and Elijah as a result must also wrap his face because something happens within us when we see the glory of God and so when Mark is saying that Jesus meant to pass them by this is what he's referring to Saying that what Jesus wanted to do in this moment was to reveal the fullness of who he was to them. To show them that he is God, that he's not playing games, that he is fulfilling what was talked about in the Old Testament with Moses and with Elijah. He wants them to be able to see his glory, but what's happening? They are so overcome by their loneliness and their doubt and their hopelessness that Jesus isn't able to do it at this time they can't see it and so Jesus he takes another approach he he speaks to them and he says take heart it is i And what he's not saying there is, hey, guys, calm down. It's it's me, Jesus, not a ghost. It's Jesus. What he's saying there is actually extremely profound, extremely powerful. Jesus is saying, I am. He's declaring the very name of God. He's telling his disciples, "No, listen. This is not a ghost. God is here with you. God was praying for you. God saw you. God walked to you, and now God is getting in the boat with you. I am is here." And he's saying, "Have hope. Take heart." Even though you struggle now, God has come to rescue you. And Mark ends this chapter in a very unique way. The end of chapter 6, after the story, Jesus gets in the boat and thinks calm. And then Mark seems to kind of turn a sharp corner. And he has a couple of verses in there that are just kind of summaries of different healings and miracles that Jesus performed along the way. But it's not a hard turn for Mark. What Mark is doing is he's in a sense recapping some of the things that have been done but he's also showing that those same things the people that have been healed the miracles that that Jesus has done in the lives of the broken are being done on a much bigger scale. That in the whole narrative of the story yes we get the details of a specific few but there were many That Jesus saw and came to and entered into their struggle and rescued them. So the question for us this morning is, have you ever felt alone? Have you ever wrestled with doubt? You ever feel like you get dragged down by the hopelessness of the situations going on around you? I would ask you to remember this story. What is Mark showing us? Jesus was praying for you. Jesus saw you. Jesus came to you. Jesus entered in to your struggle. And Jesus rescued you. There's a strong connection there to what we're going to be celebrating here in a few weeks. That there was a time when Jesus again is going to be praying, this time not on a mountain, but in a garden. He's going to start coming to us, not on the shore, but to the cross. He's going to join us in our struggle not in a boat, but through his life that will be given. He's going to bring payment to our guilt to rescue us. And then in three days, he's going to walk out declaring, I am is here. I am has invited you into a new everlasting reality from a divine perspective and so church maybe it's time for us to really enter into the journey of faith with a prayer that it would diminish our broken reality in light of what Jesus has done let's pray God, we praise you for your goodness, for your faithfulness. God, that in our times of struggle, you proved yourself again and again of who you are. God, that you are powerful, you are mighty, you are everlasting. And, God, so often the things that stand in the way of us believing that is our own version of reality. It is our brokenness, our sinfulness, our loneliness, our doubt, our hopelessness. And so, God, I pray that by the power of your spirit indwelling in us, God, that we would remember that you saw us and came to us. And you now have invited us to something much greater. To see your world from your perspective in light of the cross, in light of the tomb. Jesus, might you help us to walk in a manner of faith that diminishes our brokenness. In Jesus' name.